Hello and welcome to the Fisher Phillips Wage and Hour podcast. This is a podcast that explores questions and ideas associated with employers' desire to pay employees properly. My name is Haygood Ty, and I am the co-chair of the Fisher and Phillips Wage and Hour Practice Group, and I have the opportunity to host this podcast. Today, we are joined by Joel Rice and Scott Fanning, who are both lawyers from our Chicago office, and in their practice, they spend a considerable amount of time advising companies on wage and hour issues, as well as litigating wage and hour issues, including class and collective action lawsuits, both in Illinois and in other parts of the country. So they have a great deal of experience for us to draw upon. So today we're going to be talking about the administrative exemption. So the administrative exemption is one of the white-collar exemptions to the wage and hour laws and the wage and hour requirement that employees be paid overtime. So in other words, if an individual qualifies as being exempt under this exemption, they would be paid a salary and would not be paid overtime. Now, that is a very simple explanation, but I'm sure that the gentleman we're speaking with today will be providing us with more insight into issues we ought to be thinking about. So, Joel, maybe we could start with you. What are some of the common misconceptions that employers have about the administrative exemption? Thank you, Haygood. Yes, there's, there's several misconceptions that I see in my practice from time to time. One example would be equating the importance, uh, the exempt status of a position with the monetary impact if it's not performed well. So you could have a person that's maybe operating a very important piece of equipment, and if they mess it up, it could cause a tremendous amount of property damage. Or you might have a person that's in a technical job that directs freight for a logistics company but they don't really exercise any discretion or independent judgment, that misrouting of the freight could cost the company a lot of monetary damages in a commercial context. But that does not make those positions administratively exempt because the key is that the role has to be exercising discretion and independent judgment as to matters of significance. And while the monetary impact could be significant, that does not equate to discretion and independent judgment. So that would be one example. Another example, Haygood, could be confusing, and this is one that crops up a lot, confusing highly technical abilities or skill with discretion and independent judgment. So you could have a person who's very intelligent they've mastered a complex manual or a set of industry codes or specifications, that does not necessarily mean that that position is exempt because they're not exercising freedom of judgment and discretion. They're simply applying rules that are fixed, that don't allow them to really make any decisions beyond applying the rule. I mean, an example could be some types of inspector positions where you're inspecting a weld 
to make sure it conforms to an industry standard for a weld. If that's really all you're doing, you might have a lot of technical ability, but that does not necessarily mean that you are exercising discretion and independent judgment. One other example, hey, good, that I, comes to my mind would be, and this is kind of in the other direction, some clients might think, well, this position is not administratively exempt because the person is making judgments, but others up the chain have to review it and approve it. And, you know, almost every position in an organization is going to have a hierarchy or have somebody above them that has to sign off on a decision. That does not necessarily mean it's not a discretionary position. As long as that person is truly exercising judgment as to a matter of significance, and their judgments are generally accepted, even if someone has to sign off on them, that can still be qualify for the administrative exemption. Well, thanks, Joel. So when we're talking about whether somebody is qualified for this exemption, you've been talking about some of the components of the duties test. And so they're required to exercise certain duties in addition to being paid a salary. And some of those duties require the exercise of discretion and independent judgment. But as you pointed out, just because it's an important job or a highly skilled job, that in and of itself doesn't get them over the hurdle. So when you're working with companies and looking at how they might be trying to use the administrative exemption, do you see any mistakes or self-inflicted wounds that some make that we should be thinking about that those listening might want to learn from? Yeah. One that's kind of a, I suppose, a pet peeve of mine, because I do see it come up from time to time. And that has to do with misusing job descriptions. So they can be misused in a couple of ways. But one way is that you do not, in the job description, really prominently highlight the primary exempt duties of the job. If a job description concerns somebody that you believe is administratively exempt, then those discretionary duties should be highlighted in the job description and should be listed as the essential duties instead of burying them at the bottom of the page. Job descriptions, a lot of employers don't realize that job descriptions can help in selling the administrative exempt nature of the job by the way you organize the information about what the job does. So that's, that's an example of not making full use of a job description, which can be a good tool in that regard. Now, Joel, when we're talking about the job description, it's probably a good idea to remind our listeners that while it can be a tool, by itself, it won't accomplish the objective of allowing the employee to be exempt. The job description also has to reflect reality. In other words, the real duties being performed, right? That is absolutely correct. That's kind of the other side of the coin with job descriptions is they are necessary or maybe almost necessary, but not sufficient. So a good job description can certainly give you a leg up, but you really need to be auditing the actual day-to-day -day duties of the job and making sure that that job description accurately describes them. Because at the end of the day, 
The job description is just a shorthand, but at the end of the day, the issue is what are the duties that that position is performing day to day? That's very interesting, Joel. You know, when we think about the exemption, we've talked a little bit about the duties. To be exempt, these employees also have to be paid on a salary basis. Do you see employers asking questions or making mistakes about what sort of deductions, if any, can be made from those salaries? Yes, this is pretty common, which is you have a white-collar exempt employee, whether it's the administrative exemption or even the, the executive exemption, and let's say, for whatever reason, they are showing up late. Maybe you would expect them to be in the office by 9. They're showing up at 10. Maybe they're leaving early at 3. And the employer is tempted to say, well, what am I paying them for if they're only working six hours a day, I should be able to cut their pay to reflect this poor performance. And the answer almost always is that you are not allowed to dock people for missing hours over the course of a day, unless it's pursuant to a PTO issue or something like that. The far better approach to dealing with that issue for a white collar exempt employee is to discipline them. If their performance is spotty, you can give them a warning. You can even terminate their employment. But it's better not to dock their hours for that because you are then potentially undermining the salary basis, which is the other component that makes a position exempt, is you have to pay people the same amount of money regardless, week by week, you know, regardless of the amount of work being performed or the quality. Well, Joel, thanks. That salary basis test is as you said, a very important component. And Scott Fanning, let me ask you this. You know, as we think about the salary basis test, you know, one of the things that's come about in recent years is we have more state and local jurisdictions that have various paid leave laws or sick leave laws and things like that. How do we address the salary basis test when employees have exhausted paid leave and comply with both these laws and the FLSA? Thank you, Haga. This is a very common question that we're receiving more frequently. As you mentioned, there's state and local paid sick leave laws are becoming more common in various jurisdictions throughout the United States. And it's important because as Joel mentioned, to qualify for the administrative exemption, you have to be paid on a salary or fee basis. And that means that in terms of the salary basis, your pay can't be based on the quantity or quality of your work. And so you can lose an exempt status if you're making deductions for certain absences, unless it meets one of the exemptions set forth by the FLSA. And in this case, the FLSA allows employers to deduct from pay from an employee's salary for full day absences due to sickness, provided though that the deduction is made in accordance with a bona fide plan, policy, or practice of providing wage replacement benefits for such absences. It's that language that creates this question and uncertainty in a lot of employers' mind is, okay, we have this paid sick leave plan or policy, but the employee, you know, isn't he eligible to participate yet or has exhausted their leave, so they're not actually receiving wage replacement benefits for those absences. So if they're not receiving wage replacement benefits, they ask, can we continue with the deduction? Fortunately, the Department of Labor has provided us with clear guidance on this subject, and the answer is yes. 
you know, if you have a bona fide paid sick leave plan or paid disability plan, you're still able to deduct or reduce an employee's salary due to full day absences, even though they aren't receiving any paid sick leave for those absences, either it's because they're not eligible yet or they've exhausted their leave. But the critical thing to remember here is it's only for full day absences. If it's a partial day absence and they're not eligible for the leave or they've exhausted their leave, you can't make a deduction for the partial day. Well, thank you, Scott. And I think the only partial day absence I can think of that an employer may be able to make a deduction for would be for leave that is approved under the Family and Medical Leave Act. For example, intermittent leave. Is that right? Correct. Absolutely. So, yeah, what I was talking about, what we're referring to are situations where it's not FMLA qualifying leave, but leave that an employee is entitled to take pursuant to whatever paid sick leave policy that you have in place. Well, Scott, that's great advice. You know, generally I tell employers that I think they're better off not making deductions of any type or almost of any type from salaried employees with very limited exceptions. And in those cases, they really need to double check and be sure they're doing it properly and legally, both under federal law and under state law. Well, I want to thank our listeners for joining us today, and I want to thank Joel Rice and Scott Fanning for their insightful comments about this exemption. If you've got further questions about the administrative exemption or anything else related to the FLSA, feel free to reach out to Joel Rice or Scott Fanning with those questions. I'll also mention to you that on our website, fisherphillips.com, we have a wage and hour page with quite a bit of free, very useful information, along with a national chart that shows state wage and hour laws that you may have questions about. And if you want to keep up to date with what's going on from a wage and hour standpoint, either in your state or across the country, you can sign up for Fisher Phillips Insights by going to our website. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, once you get to fisherphillips.com, you'll see a place where you can subscribe. We thank you for being here today and hope that you have a good and safe rest of your week. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation. 